Well, we have reached the end of Joseph's story. If you're new here this morning, we've been on a six-week journey through the life of Joseph, and we started that when he was maybe 17 years old and uh, finding himself in a strange land, uh, betrayed by his family. And now we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves at the conclusion of Joseph's life. And so today, uh, it would be my great joy to share with all of you some final thoughts, some concluding bits of wisdom, perhaps, on how we take the leadership lessons that we've discussed all these weeks and actually apply them to life. And I've been intrigued this last month. I, uh, we're kind of sports nuts in our house, and I forgot how many major athletic events are in the month of June. Stanley Cup, right? It's a little controversial U.S. Open. <laughs> we have the Copa America. A lot of the athletic activities that go on in June garner huge crowds, right? And I've always been fascinated by watching the leaders of athletic teams and the leadership in athletic institutions and how some of the major sports in our country add up to millions and billions of dollars of revenue just in t-shirts and products alone. There's nothing else we wear the name on our back of other people for other than an athletic team, right? I have some friends that are great musicians and they don't go to the symphony in their suit with the name of their favorite musician emblazoned on the back. When you go to an art gallery, you don't put the name of your favorite artist on the back of your t-shirt. But we, we emulate and we wear the names of all of these sports fans. Actually, real quick, I'm going to ask you to engage with each other. I know, talk to each other on a Sunday morning, right? Turn around, who's, who's your favorite athlete of all time? Even if you're not a sports person, which I totally respect if you're not, who's your favorite athlete? If you had to wear one jersey, whose name would be on the back of the jersey? Just tell that to the person next to you real quick. Okay, I'm guessing at least one name, probably not the name of a Chicago Bear, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you know, my, my kids are sports nuts, and uh, my son always wears uh, Jonathan Tay's jerseys everywhere. And it's funny to listen to him talk. He wants to lead a team like that. He wants to play hockey like that. He's nine, and when you ask him about his perception of the logical progression of his life, he says, well, I'm going to be done with elementary school, and then I'll go to middle school, and then I'll go to high school, and then I'll, I'll be in the NHL. And Jonathan Taze, well, I'll be, I'll be on the Blackhawks with Jonathan Taze. And he says this as if this is the most sure thing that's possibly going to happen in his life. And he wants to be like that. Now, this year is the 50th anniversary of Gatorade sports drink and the sugar rush or whatever it is you get from electrolytes and Gatorade, but 1992, Gatorade just re-released this commercial. There was a commercial called Be Like Mike. Any of you who grew up in the 90s know this song, Like Mike, 
if I could be like Mike. And then there's this group of kids, this choir of kids that just keep singing, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. I'm going to make Chad do that next time because I can't sing. And what kid, no matter where they lived in the country, no matter what sports team, didn't want to be if they played basketball like Michael Jordan? Leadership does this to us. It invites us to consider being like the person we're watching. And what we've been doing for these last few weeks is having a conversation about how we could be more like Joe. What happened in his life? What sort of leader was he? The story of Joseph, as we know, is compelling enough on its own. It's 13 chapters of Genesis. There are few stories in Scripture that take up that much real estate in Scripture. And the story was significant for the folks who read it then. It was committed to memory. It was passed down as an oral tradition for centuries. And we receive it today. We've received it on Broadway the early 70s, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a good story. That's why it landed on Broadway. They say to date, over 20,000 local and community theaters have redone, and schools have redone that play. It's a beautiful story. Here's the great thing, though, about all of us who live in the New Testament time, in the time after understanding that Jesus came. We are not old Testament Christians, we live in the light of Jesus and the sacrifice of the, Christ, of the cross. And if you look at the story of Joseph, while it has so much merit and so much power on its own, it is a foreshadowing of the leadership of Jesus. It is an invitation to learn those leadership principles and to be more like Jesus, to wear that name on the back of our jerseys. Consider for a moment a few, just a few of the parallels. If any of you just, this is your thing, Google this. You will be astounded by the number of parallels from Joseph's life and the life of Jesus. They were both firstborn. They were both beloved by their fathers. They were both shepherds. Both sold off Judas, Joseph's brothers. Both of them had been sold off. They were both called to the right hand of leadership. There are descriptions in both of their stories of being at the right hand of leadership. Both went to Egypt. Both were falsely accused. Both were betrayed by people they loved and trusted. All of the knees in Egypt bowed down to Joseph. And as we know in scripture, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The family of Joseph shares great favor because they have a connection to the king. And we are people of favor in God's eyes because of the connection to God that we have through Jesus. Joseph's own family, his own brothers, when he eventually does feed them, when they come to him during the famine in Egypt, he, they, don't they don't recognize Joseph. His own family didn't recognize him. And the Jews, the people, the family of Jesus, and remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. They didn't recognize him. And lastly, the leadership of both of these men alleviated the suffering of many. Scriptures, New Testament scriptures, point regularly to Old Testament narratives. And they pull from them 
examples and foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. Paul does this in Romans 5 when he talks about Christ as a type, or Adam as a type of Christ, that Jesus comes later to fulfill and to finish the unfinished stories at times in the Old Testament. This is why the leadership of Joseph matters so much. Yes, because it's a great story. Yes, because there's brilliant leadership principles in there. But more than anything, it's because it leads us to the type of leadership that Jesus wants all of us to exercise. And we've had conversations, and as a reminder, I'll just say it again, to be a leader for Jesus and for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with power and stature. It has everything to do with being present to the people and the task that is before you. Some of you are high-level, very visible leaders, perhaps in your schools, in the companies that you maybe run or serve in. And that, of course, is a lot of the leadership that we see, but there's also a lot of unseen leadership. Every single person has a leadership capacity in them and the ability to lead something and somebody. It does not have to be big, flashy, with your name in lights. Well, when we dig into the text that we have before us today, we see that Joseph, the patriarch, as Mike read, has died. And if ever there was a moment to wonder about the future yet again, this is it. If you remember, Joseph's brothers betrayed him, sold him off into slavery after making a decision not to kill him instead. This is family dysfunction, if there ever was family dysfunction. And Joseph agrees to feed his brothers during the famine, and they come to him, and he meets their need. But Jacob's still alive, and there's this moment of wonder when Jacob dies, and you see that his brothers have it, and they think to themselves, what if he will seek revenge on us now that dad is dead? What if he was just appeasing our father by helping us out. What if he chooses now as the moment to get even with us for all the great wrongs we have brought against him? And they wonder this aloud as they enter their mourning process together, and they come up with a preemptive strike. Let's talk with him about it before he even considers it. And interestingly, if you look at Genesis 50, verses 16 and 17, you see that they do not even speak to him directly about this. Scriptures say they sent word, and that there was a conversation, a third party had a conversation with Joseph about this. And it's heartbreaking because they're so worried about his possible option of getting revenge on them. And it grieves Joseph when he hears this. And it's clear at this moment that he loves his family. And he does not want to enslave them. They offer themselves to him as his slaves. They bow down to him, interestingly, making true the dream that he had all those years ago in Genesis 37. It, scriptures say he, they laid down before him and they said, make us your slaves, please, whatever it is, please, be kind to us. And Joseph is so deeply grieved by this. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see the love of Jesus foreshadowed in this story? It's oozing out of the pages. It's begging us to find our place and act accordingly. Where have you or I been tempted to chase after revenge or getting even or just making people squirm a little bit rather than forgiving and trying to reconcile? Our power is not for our own personal gain. It is for the flourishing of others. And it is so tempting when we are in positions of power to exercise that negatively towards anyone who has inflicted injury or harm on us. Revenge, however, is not God's plan. Joseph, we're told, spoke kindly to them. It's interesting, the knee-jerk response that takes root in our culture on getting even. You know, we believe people should be held accountable, they should pay the price for their crimes, we need to fight hard and fight often to make sure this happens. We should not let anybody know we are weak. We need to pursue getting even. I mean, think of how litigious our culture is today. And there's a, a great American lawyer and statesman, Elihu Root, who was um, once the Secretary of War, but was a, an attorney for many years. And he said at his time in history that lawyering, as he put it, should mostly consist of telling would-be clients that they were complete fools and they should shut up. That's what he said, okay? You know, maybe at a time in history, someone would have taken that advice. This is, this is a, a century ago. I have great friends who are lawyers, and they will tell you that if they choose not to take a case, the person who's so bent on revenge just goes to the next, the next, the next, the next. They are going to get what they want. They are going to find somebody to fight for them, even if logic and reason tells them, stop fighting and act otherwise. And sometimes we get angry with people when they're right and we're wrong. That feels a little awkward sometimes when we're caught in the wrong and we want to act properly, but sometimes there's even a little bit of us that's so disarmed and unprepared to have been caught wrong that maybe we even seek revenge for someone who called us out and proved themselves right. In the wise words of Dumbledore, he says, people find it far easier to forgive others for being wrong than being right. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? Joseph did not seek revenge on his brothers. It says in the story that he looked for some sign that their lives had changed, that their posture toward him had softened or been shifted in some way over the years. Would those years, maybe Joseph asked himself, have changed them? It had been so very long since they were a family together. Was there any evidence they regretted their decision? Were they men of integrity and character? Did Joseph miss his brothers? Did he grieve the second half of a childhood that they stole from him? Did he want to be with his family again? 
And these are the real-life feelings of a man who suffered greatly, whether deserved or not, <laughs> at the hands of his family. And when, as we read a couple weeks ago, they did come hungry, on the verge of death, in the throes of a terrifying famine, in Genesis 41, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses of and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. They came to him, and he provided, and his family was in the throngs of people that came to him. His leadership extended its arms in generosity, and he fed the hungry people. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the leadership that we see foreshadowed in Joseph and that we receive through Jesus. So the final installment in this leadership lesson is finding a way to answer the question, is your leadership ultimately about reconciliation and forgiveness and extending mercy and grace to others? Is your leadership, is my leadership ultimately about empowering others and bringing about flourishing? And forgiveness does not imply that history is erased. Some of us have suffered tragic events and have been injured greatly by others. And to forgive and to move in a leadership posture that brings healing and reconciliation does not mean we pretend those things never happened. They are part of our memory. They are part of our history. Forgiveness does not erase history. It is not trying to forget that anything ever went wrong. It does not mean that we become BFFs with the people who have injured us. To forgive somebody does not mean you need to go to brunch with them for the next two years and hang out. To forgive does not mean a person necessarily deserves to be forgiven. It's an act that is not dependent on them, but it is dependent on you, on us, on the wounded. Forgiveness is an act of mercy and grace that the forgiver freely chooses to extend regardless of the response. And that's pretty hard because I will confess there are times where I forgive and I want immediately that person to explain to me how they never meant to harm me anyway. And sometimes they just look at me like, well, I don't know what the big deal is. Wow, does that make me want to take back my extension of forgiveness? Regardless of what they respond. It is an act that over time will release you and I from the stress and the anger and the anxiety that comes with clenching these things so tight. It is an opportunity to release our grip and let time and God heal the broken places. 
It is an opportunity to be like Jesus. And God holds us accountable for our wrongs in so many ways. But if we say to him, I'm so sorry, he forgives. And we have committed such great atrocities against the God of the universe. I mean, just look around at the, the news feed from just this last week. God does not seek revenge. He is not up in heaven throwing down lightning bolts. Aha, you over there with that thing you did wrong. That's not how this works. So who are we to act like that when the God of the universe does not act like that? Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2, extended himself in a humbling, faith-filled way. And we are called in Philippians 2 to model this same way of being in our lives. Listen to these words. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't want to extend power unfairly, and he didn't use his power to wreak havoc against all the atrocities and things he saw. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, to the ultimate leadership, to the ultimate spot of leadership, and gave him the name that is above all names, the ultimate name on the back of the jersey, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good word of the Lord. This is the model of leadership we are being invited to. Yes, because Joseph has a compelling story, of course, but more than anything else, because Joseph's leadership is really foreshadowing us the leadership of Jesus. There's a great uh, Christian leader in India, a man named Vishal Mangwaldi. I probably butchered that last name. But he writes about the impact that an Australian missionary woman named Gladys Staines had on his country just about two decades ago. Gladys and her husband Graham had two boys, and they were working in India with lepers, and they were loving and serving and providing the care and the compassion and the Christian heart that God had given them with these folks. And this is what Vishal writes about her story. He says, Gladys was average. She was ordinary, a stay-at-home mom, a wife, but she stunned our nation by spontaneously and unpretentiously humbly, genuinely forgiving militant Hindus who, because they didn't appreciate her work or her Christian viewpoint, burned her husband and her young sons alive. On January 23, 1999. But in 2005, the government of India honored her with the highest civilian honors possible in that country, the question is, why should an individual be given a national honor simply for giving murderers? She forgave them. 
To appreciate that forgiveness is to remember that India's and Pakistan's births, he writes, as free nations came with the terrible pain of sectarian riots. There were about 10 million people made homeless. One half to one million people were killed. This is how Gandhi was killed. 50 years, he says, of democracy and education could not free us from this destructive chain of violence, but one woman who stood up and took the call of God and her leadership role seriously and forgave the atrocious crime of murdering her family. She moved the entire nation. And he writes that she was able to break the chain of violence like no law, no bill, no conversation about who gets what and what religion goes here or there ever could. She stood up and publicly forgave this atrocity. And he goes on to say that she broke the common chain of cause and effect that happens so often when we choose revenge out of forgiveness. And those stories always make me gasp. I always think to myself, could I do that? <laughs> could, could I do that? I don't know. I'm going to confess. I don't know if I could do what she did. I find it so powerful that she did, and I'd love to think I could. I don't ever want to find out, I confess. I don't ever want to be in that situation. But many of us find ourselves in much less situations almost every day. And you don't need me to stand up here and remind you that we are sort of at war within our own country right now, hurling insults and arguments at one another. This political climate is, is obnoxious right now. And instead of engaging in civil public dialogue, we're seeing the downfall of those people and we want those groups to pay and we want that group to own up and we will never vote for that and we hate that and we're going to picket this and we're going to riot that. I wonder if any sort of leadership could emerge where we forgive our misunderstandings of one another, where we seek to actually listen, where we sit down and actually have honest dialogue. Is that possible? I hope it is. I confess I don't know. <laughs> but these are the leadership lessons that apply to us today. And when we leave from here today, I want us to all consider, myself included, where do you find that knee-jerk response come up in you? What, what group of people just frustrate you? Where do you find yourself going, I hope they get what they deserve? I hope she doesn't do that. I hope he didn't do that. Well, I'm going to show them. There's a little bit of that in all of us. And we continue the cycle and the chain of anger and frustration and injustice, we continue that when we refuse to listen to one another and forgive and engage in God-honoring conversations. This is what Joseph did with his brothers. This is what Jesus does with his enemies. If you look throughout scripture, he talks with them. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, those who wanted to see his demise and his destruction, he knew who they were. He knew they were sitting there plotting his very death. And he engages them in civil conversation and he forgives them. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So who are we to carry on our leadership as if those stories do not apply to us? Because they do. 
And so that's the invitation at the conclusion of this series, is to take all the great ideas that have been tossed out there, all the different styles of leadership we saw in Joseph's life, but more than anything, pull it under the banner of Jesus and ask yourself, what would Jesus' leadership look like in the situations of my life? And where am I leading like I want to lead, like I feel it's my right to lead, versus where Jesus would move and lead in different ways? It's a big question, one to keep chewing on and musing on for sure. But consider the leadership of Jesus above all else as you take these thoughts from Joseph forward. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gift of this conversation, for this community of people who've come together to wrestle with what leadership looks like. God, thank you that you gave us the stories of Joseph. And thank you that because of Joseph and because of ultimately Jesus, we know more about how to be the leadership, the leaders that you have called us to be. Let us be faithful to that task. Let us ask ourselves the hard questions. Let us own our part of the injuries that we see around us. And let us extend grace and mercy to those we love and those we perhaps don't even know. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody together said, amen.